Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs and advanced practice nurses with certified financial planner Jeremy Stanley and CRNA Sharon Pierce. Jeremy Stanley has worked with CRNAs for more than 23 years, and Sharon Pierce is a former president of the AANA and the NCANA. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA and advanced practice nurse industries. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Hello, Ms. Pierce. Oh my goodness, I still can't get used to you calling me that. What up? I thought you were supposed to call me Dr. Pierce. Well, you know, if I call you doctor, it'll give you the big head or something. You know, so. <laughs> the question is, how are you doing today, Jeremy? Hey, just peachy keen. You know, everything is great. Couldn't get any better, right? Oh, come on now. <laughs> Tell the truth. Uh, we're all good. We'll, we'll all keep rolling. <laughs> Uh, the financial system is in such good shape right now. I can tell by looking at your face. <laughs> uh, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. It always does. That's right. That's right. But it's the middle part that's a little painful. Yeah. 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 For everybody always. So. Well, you haven't broken out the scotch that I know is in that bottom drawer in your desk. So you must be okay. <laughs> no, no, that, that doesn't help anything. So. Mm-mm. Well, we've got a great show lined up today, and uh, we have a wonderful guest with us who probably most of our listeners have uh, either heard of or or know personally. Oh, absolutely. And if they don't, they're going to know her and remember her after this podcast. Absolutely. Well, she is pretty memorable. So. I agree. Well, and just ask her husband. <laughs> well, you know, most women's husband would probably tell you the same thing about their wife, right? Well, in public they would, but, you know, she has, uh, I call her husband Stud Muffin. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, maybe we'll hear about that on the podcast today. <laughs> maybe so. Here it goes. Here it goes. Uh, well, Jan, why don't you, well, uh, Hey, Stud Muffin. Um, well, Jan, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and why our listeners should know you? Well, I'm Janet Setner. I have been a member of the AANA since, um, I guess, as a student in 1996. I think that's when the earth was still cooling for most of the folks out there. All right. Um, big, big, be careful. I come out a little <laughs> bit before that. <laughs> and I graduated from Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia in uh, 1998, which was the first year that CRNAs were required to graduate with a master's. Mm-hmm. And so that was the year that there was quite the kerfuffle about why do we need the master's? And 
Um, it feels like history is repeating itself a little bit because right now um, we have all of our programs have converted over to the doctorate um, as the terminal degree. And there's a good group of people that are wondering why do we need the doctorate? So it's kind of uh, repeated itself a little bit, but um, still in a positive way. We look down the road 10 years and everybody will have their doctorate like yourself. Um, but you did go a different route with that with Yale, smarty. Um, <laughs> um, I was um, critical care and trauma nurse for a number of years, um, traveling around with my husband, who was active duty Air Force. And when we came to the Pentagon, I met a person who was a flight nurse in the Air Force and went to visit the unit and fell in love with it and became um, an aeromedical evacuation nurse, transporting patients all over the world. And I did that for 10 years. Eventually, um, in at that time in the military, since not everybody did have a master's, especially um, nurses, a lot of nurses did not have master's um, for promotion. We had to have an advanced degree. So went ahead and got my degree as a CRNA and from then just kind of dove right into it. Um, I've been involved at the state level since student. Um, I had Louise Hershkowitz, who was one of my friends, colleagues, and a mentor, and um, she took me to my first meeting, and I've been going ever since. I've been involved in one way or another at the state um, and at the national level, which is where I met you, Sharon. I think I met you at my first um, AANA meeting in 97, 98. Oh, my goodness. Wow. that long? Oh, wow. boy. So, there um, is, there, what did I say? That's all I want to know. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't talk about dates. It's very there. Uh, but I've been the Region 2 director like you were, Sharon, in the past. And I uh, did that for two years, the amazing Republic of Region 2. And uh, this past year, I had the honor of serving as the AANA vice president. So it's been fun. I've been able to meet a lot of people. And it, it's just been a, a great adventure. Yep. So while we're talking about dates... How long have you been in the military? Um, or were in, you in the military? Uh, 26 years. Actually, my whole life. My dad was in the Army, so I was an Army brat. And I swore to God I was never going to get involved with the military or move again. <laughs> and in college, I meet Chip Sittner and fall head over heels, and he's going to go into the Air Force. And mm. so I was the only one of the three kids who uh, said what I wasn't going to do, married somebody in the military, and... We've been moving around and moving our kids all over the place ever since. And that's that's our topic today, military CRNAs and, and some of the that's lessons right. that you've learned and living well through it as well. So, Jan, you know, I guess the question becomes now, and you kind of gave away a little bit, but why did you decide to serve? Was it because of your family? Was it because of CHIP? Was it because, you know, what what were your thoughts behind that? Kind of a combination there. Um, like I said, my I come from a military family, and I was always so proud of what my dad did. He was in the Army. Um, he retired as a command sergeant major. Um, he served under Colin Powell for a period of time. Um, he was his first sergeant in, in Korea. And so we, we very peripherally know the Powell family being associated with them. But um, having my dad and all of his friends and living on military posts around the world, there's just some type of um, feeling of safety, cohesiveness. I mean, the families that we've had from the military, we're still family friends with all of those folks more than anything else. And when the opportunity came to uh, join the unit as a flight nurse, 
in addition to looking very sexy in those green flight suits, you've seen those pilots. Have you seen Top Gun? Don't I think those, those are. Great, I think they're great. Suits? You know, be there. I mean, so so the opportunity was there, um, and actually, um, we're not going to go around what opportunity was there, but yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, just the. Uh, but when I was taking my my flight physical, um, when I decided to join. I was sitting in the flight surgeon's office with the other folks and we're doing our flight physical and the news comes on and uh, Saddam invaded Kuwait. Mm. And that kicked off um, a, a great deal of deployments on the base that I was about to join. And it, it did give me pause because I had kids. Um, I had a family and it became real for real, really fast. The reality of, of what I was doing exactly. So, hmm. but no, it was a natural progression. It just felt natural to join the military. I, I never intended to um, make it a full-on career. It just turned out that way with the opportunities that I was given. So talk to us about the advantages and disadvantages from your point of view. Well, the advantages of being in the military, whether you're active duty or reserves, which is where a majority of my service time is, advantages, um, the education that you get is amazing. The friendships that you get or that you develop while you're serving, the ability to advance with your skills. They they do have a lot of educational opportunities to advance trauma skills, burn skills, critical, critical um, care nursing type skills, which is what I was doing at the time. And um, it was just an opportunity to take advantage of. The other thing that the military offers their nurses that the civilian side doesn't seem to have the bigger handle on is leadership training, where if you want to progress, you have to demonstrate the ability for the next rank. And part of that ability may not be your amazing clinical nursing skills, but do you have the ability to lead a group of people? The goal of the military and the mission of the military is care of the warfighter, regardless of which service you're in. And so part of that care of the warfighter is you have to know how to take the group you're with and lead them into different situations. And are you ready to handle that? And so at the various levels, um, depending on early on, you, you start with very basic leadership skills all the way through to when I retired as a colonel to um, policy writing and leading at a very higher level and interacting with um, international forces as well as leaders outside of nursing and being able to uh, do that in a smart way. Well, what I'm hearing is thank you, Air Force, for training you to come to the AANA and lead us going forward. Oh, I'm telling you, the the, the skills that we, we learned, you can transfer into the civilian world really easily. And it just depends on if you want to do it. And I, I'm not surprised when I go to the meetings and even now on our board, we have several members on the board with me that are prior military or currently serving. Um, like Jen Bannock right now, she is um, in the Army and she is currently deployed to Korea in a leadership position, not doing anesthesia. Hmm. So she's leading a group of um of her or her, um, I'm not sure if it's uh, not a squadron, that's Air Force. I should know this. I took a whole leadership course in what the Army calls them. But anyway, she's with <laughs> her. Um, it's not a battalion. That's too big. But with the group that she's with, she is leading them through um, a group in Korea where they're replacing a unit over there for a period of time. And so um, 
Oh, my, my sidekick over here is telling me it's a company. So she's leading a company out there. Um, and so she's taking her leadership skills and translating them into uh, a different area. That's the other thing with the military is they allow you to step outside of the OR to do things that are not clinical and nursing, but spreading your wings a little bit like Jennifer's doing and leading a group of people in a completely different way. And that's something that, again, we don't teach our nurses. Um, most nurses are taught clinical nursing and you are taught to be at the bedside or you are taught to be in the OR. And that's one of the reasons for anesthesia on the civilian side, nobody knows about us hmm. because we're very happily doing our jobs in the OR, um, just doing our clinical stuff and being amazing and being an expert at what we do, but you gotta step outside. You gotta be able to get outside of your comfort zone to be noticed. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. And Jen, while you were in the Air Force, you decided to switch from being a flight nurse to being a CRNA. And what, what made you do that? Um, at the time, again, remember the earth was still cooling when I first came into the Air Force. And we came in with our degrees, BSN, um, RN, uh, the entry level to come into the Air Force as a nurse is a BSN. And for promotion, in addition to taking uh, professional military education, i.e. the leadership courses that, that you have to take to promote, you had to have an advanced degree. And so um, I knew that I had to get a master's if I was going to continue in the service. And, um, and, and all of us were told whether you think you're going to stay in, the, stay in for the long haul or not, you should take the time to do the professional military education because you don't want to limit yourself if you change your mind later on. But you had to get a master's. And I looked at going back to school and um, I have always admired the CRNAs that I was able to work with. And it always concerned me that I wouldn't be smart enough to do it. And one of my girlfriends looked at me and she goes, I'm doing it. And, you know, it's like, well, you know, I guess so. If she can do it. I can do it, too. And you start looking at your, your peers. And um, I still have PTSD from going to school. Um, three years of education. And it is difficult. It is hard. But nothing good comes easy. And so I made the jump to go to anesthesia school. I did get a stipend through the Air Force to go to school. And so I had a leg up on a lot of my classmates who we're building up quite a bit of financial burden because, you know, as you all know, we don't work while we're in school. It's it's pretty demanding. But I thought I would stay in flight nursing. In the reserves, you can still have the dual career. You can be on the civilian side. I could be a nurse anesthetist. 
but I could stay on the flight nursing side. But at the time, they needed master's prepared nurses to be in the educational settings that the military had. And so a couple of us from my reserve unit um, switched from aeromedical evacuation to being staff anesthetist and adjunct professors at Travis Air Force Base with their um, program where they sent their their um, CRNAs for clinical training. Well, let's talk about being a clinician in the military. And CRNAs provide most of the anesthesia that's that's given in the military. Is that correct? Absolutely. I'll, prob- I'll mostly focus on the Air Force because that was my home. Um, but we do interact with all the other services. And the misnomer is that uh, military CRNAs are trained differently or they go through a specialized program. Now, the military does have an anesthesia program at Uniform Services University in Bethesda. And I believe they have um, the Navy has a program, um, but but they do have a program to train folks. Yes. However, a majority of the CRNAs in the military come from civilian programs and the training that we get, the, the Council of Accreditation also has to accredit the military program. It's not like it's a magic castle that you go into and you come out with superpowers. All of the CRNAs are given the same education. The difference is the opportunity to practice to the full extent of your education and training. When you come into the military, you are expected to be able to practice to the full extent of your education and training. Regardless of which service you go into and each of the services do have regulations or instructions or um, what is the the Navy, they still call it, um, it's part of their BUMED, their Bureau of Medicine and Surgery instructions. Um, We each have separate regulations written, but the bottom line is we are all independent, um, licensed independent providers in the military. You're expected to do that from the first day you walk in because as I mentioned previously, the mission of the medical The military medicine, regardless of which service that you're in, is care of the warfighter. And so all of the treatment facilities, the expectation is you can um, practice independently. And I think the biggest difference between us and the civilian side is we can do it. We don't need that permission to do it. Well, let's talk about the VA issue that's been going on that was supposed to have been put to bed the year I was president, we thought, 2014 to 2015, and we're still beating this dead horse. And as you know, as well as anybody, it's become a political issue. Tell me how you feel about that issue. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You know, it was so insulting back in in 2015 when, um, when this was going on and they were looking at the the advanced practice nurses. Prior to that, I, and I'm sure you remember when um, they were looking at the independent practice of the APRNs and the other nurse practitioners were gonna go on without us. And, and we were like, oh no, we're not gonna, we're not supporting that. And so we held back on that one. So then the year you were president, I thought we were gonna push it through because we had studies, we had the numbers, we could definitely show that the CRNAs were educated and trained to practice to the full extent. And the VA, um, the physicians, the ASA, I believe they put like $50 million into this um, project to combat the CRNAs from getting it. And so they could not prove 
lack of safety or lack of ability. And so they said that they had an overabundance of anesthesia providers and anesthesia was not an issue for the VA and that um, there was no need to change the practice model at that point because they couldn't do the safety. There was no way they could in any way, shape or form say we were not safe and we were not adequate providers. I mean, I testified on the Hill um, and uh, we, we talked about the fact that in Afghanistan, I was the sole anesthesia provider at one point at one of the forward operating bases. I deployed with one of the army forward surgical teams and there was no anesthesiologist in my pocket anywhere. And we took care of um, a number of really traumatic injuries and sick Afghanis as well. And they did amazing. But then those same soldiers come home. I come home to Virginia. I take off my uniform. I walk off the base. And now I have to be supervised by somebody. Your IQ dropped as you flew yeah, back Yeah, I was trying to you figure out that, what right? happened. You know, That's as you right. go over the Great Pond, you lose mm -hmm. you lose your skill set. I mean, how do you Something even. Something happens. I, I don't know. Maybe if I put my uniform on when I go into those places. I, I don't know. Well, well Jan, what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm wondering is how did they paint that picture that if, if they couldn't say it wasn't ability, it wasn't training, how did they paint the picture that everything is rosy at the VA and everybody's getting everything they need? Um, I mean, how did that even, because that's not true, is it? It's not true. Almost within six months after that was passed, it came out in Colorado that they were nine to 18 months behind in the ability to provide care for lack of anesthesia services. And the frustrating thing is, you know, just looking in, in Virginia, in our state, we have one VA that will supervise their CRNAs one-to-one. -one. We have another VA hospital where the CRNAs completely practice independently, although they have an anesthesiologist on staff because somebody has to sign the papers because according to the VA regulations, you have to have an anesthesiologist sign your papers. Another VA hospital across the state, they work so collaboratively together, they're the model that the other VA should be working under. Um, they were the ones, in fact, that um, in Virginia, we got the ability, to, uh, we got prescriptive authority. And we had fought that battle before, but we couldn't seem to get our point across. Well, now we have um, CRNAs in a VA facility that live in our state but have to get licensed in another state that gives you prescriptive authority so they can practice in Virginia to take care of our veterans. And so when we brought that up to um, the legislation and we it was passed through the House and Senate unanimously. And so we have prescriptive authority now in Virginia because of the VA CRNAs that we had there, but we're still supervising CRNAs in the state. Around the country, it's different. You go to you can go to 10 different VAs and they will have 10 different practice models and half of them will have CRNAs practicing independently. I hear a little bit of passion in your voice about this, Jan. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's something that you, that that you are as you continue on the board that you will make something that is the thing that the target that you're going to put to bed. It, it is this year we pushed really hard. Um, we thought we made a lot of progress moving forward. Um, but of course, the VA changed some leadership, they, some significant leadership positions. 
Um, and I feel like they purposefully put us back to starting over again, but we are not going to let this lie. Um, I had the opportunity to serve um, as a liaison to the Havana board, which we haven't done before. Um, oh, that's so, nice. So, yeah, so we will have an AA, a board member from the AANA with Havana to um, hear what they're doing and answer questions for them and give them some support. Um, when you're listening to this podcast out there in AA and A land, if your state is not a friend of Havana, consider joining, support them as a state. Um, if you're an individual who wants to be a peripheral member of Havana, it's $125 a year. It's worth supporting this group. <clears throat> they are like an individual group within the state. So they're members of AA and A. Um, and their dues comes to the state, well, the state should give back to them, you know, support the CRNAs in, in the Veterans um, Administration by being a friend of Havana. And that gives them the ability to come to D.C. more often to speak with their leadership. Um, Rochelle has been able to come out here several times to uh, and bring other board members with her where they didn't have the funding to do that before. We can speak for them so much, but we have to give the, the VA CRNAs that voice and we have to bring them out to speak um, for themselves. And um, it's just time to quit being nice, to take the gloves off and really speak our mind. We are too polite and we just need to um, come out swinging this time. Well, sometimes the truth won't get you what you need. <laughs> right. No, right. And, and that, being that's right that's doesn't, doesn't no. do that either. No. Right. No. They want us to tell them why we should do it. They should tell us why they think we can't do it. Ooh. Oh, wow. Well, you know, whenever I was testifying before uh, military groups to get them to endorse us going forward with this issue, I would always say if we don't do it, the only victim is the veteran. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. they're the ones who suffer. The war fighters suffer. Yeah. And they have them buffaloed. They, they don't know who took care of them when they were deployed. If you look at the all of the deployed forward deployed sites, they are mainly they were mainly manned by CRNAs in the field. And actually, when I was in Afghanistan, the first location I was at, we were at the trauma center. So um, we had a team out there and we knew that um the Army was bringing um, two more replacements out that were going to be going to one of the forward operating bases. And it was one of the gals I used to work with at my hospital in Alexandria. And the reason I was so stunned to see her is because she had just graduated from a program six months earlier, six or eight months earlier. And now she's going with um, herself and another CRNA as souls providers at a forward operating base. So if they could trust her to go out there and take care of these soldiers, why aren't they trusting her at home? Right. Yeah, makes absolutely no sense. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. 
You know, and, and Jan, you hit on this a little bit earlier when you were talking about Jim Bannock, but, um, you know, there's a lot of leadership training that you get in the military as a CRNA, and then you come back and you bring it into the civilian world. Let's talk about that a little bit. What are the differences and how do you see, um, you know, a military CRNA kind of transitioning back and that skill set bringing it to the civilian world? The difference with the, the training is when, when you go to the training um, programs, you are not with all nurses. You are with um, members that are line officers, the, the pilots, all various types of pilots. You are with admin folks. So you're mixing with a number of other individuals. So you're not just um, siloed into thinking this is all medicine and this is all nursing. And so the training that you get is um, it's multi-talented and you're getting to see other people do things and you're learning about the world. You're learning about what's happening outside of your world and how other people are doing things and um, how nurses do things is completely different and how um, a fighter squadron would do it or how um, another administrative position would do it. And just to be exposed to other forms of, of training, that was really valuable. Um, and then they give you a voice. You are forced to stand in front of a group to speak. Um, they'll give you three topics to um, speak to, and you're not sure which one you're going to have to speak to. And then until you stand up and give it. The other thing we have that that is unique, which my husband puts me through every now and again, is a murder board where um, before you go out to do a presentation, you give it to your peers and they pick it apart or build you up. They talk about what's really strong in your presentation and what's really weak in your presentation, even to the point of how you're standing. You can um, show weakness by your positioning and how you look at or not look at individuals that you're speaking with. So Sounds it's, like media training. It pretty much is. Exactly. Wow. So. They can make you cry. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> People that we absolutely. did in training. Well, you did a drive-by talking about being in a forward operating hospital. Why don't you tell us what it's like to go to war? You know, even though we, we had all this training, um, it, it's still when somebody tells you you're going into um, – a place where if you turn the TV on, you're seeing death and destruction and people shooting and things are blowing up and people you don't expect to be hurt are getting hurt. And so um, leaving home is different. People treat you different. You feel different. Uh, we have all the training to have you prepared to go there. But landing in country, the first time we landed in um, Kyrgyzstan, in, there's a base there where we pre-position and we have to get um, additional equipment to take with us. And when we were briefed before getting on the C-17 to actually fly into Afghanistan, um, the first time I met my team was at the airport. And so I knew a couple of the folks from one of the bases I was at, but there was basically three or four bases that came together to form a hospital. And we had um, the, about a 13, 14 hour trip over to the country to kind of gel as a group and figure out who your leaders are and what position you're going to be doing when you get there. The day that we um, flew into Afghanistan, you're leaving and you fly in at night and they tell you when we fly into the country, all the lights on the aircraft are black. And so, you know, they give you the heads up, it's going to happen. And then you're going, holy crap, this is for real. <clears throat> and the plane was completely pitch black. And the other thing that was daunting with this is it was completely silent. 
I mean, you know, everybody was inside their head because even though some of them had deployed, you know, most of us had not deployed before and we knew we were landing in Afghanistan and people were there to hurt us possibly. And getting off the plane in the runway, um, you know, it was like, okay, we're here. We're taken to our billets. Um, and again, it took us a little bit to even start talking to each other because it's, it's kind of scary. You know, I mean, I'm flying with a gun. How many nurses carry a nine millimeter? You know, I mean, it's like, look at me. I look like Wyatt Earp out there. But um, come to the south, come further south. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm in Virginia. You know, we can we can open carry here. Um, The other weird thing about um, going into country, which was um, kind of a sidebar for my husband, he had deployed several times. And when we sent him off, it was like, hey, honey, why don't we go to dinner? You know what? Before you go, I'm too busy to do that. You know, let's do this before you go. Nope, nope. I've got to do something else. And I would get kind of frustrated, like here, this guy's going to go away to war for four or five months and, and he doesn't want to do stuff with us. Well, now I'm deploying and ships like, why don't we go see so-and-so before we go? And I said, I can't, I've got to make sure I've got my bags together. I have to make sure I do this. And so poor Chip, he had just retired from the Air Force. And um, a month before I left, we deployed our Marine son um, off to Iraq for his first combat tour. And he was no kidding, carrying a weapon and going into combat. And then a month later, I leave for Afghanistan. And this guy's sitting there going, this is what you went through every time I had to deploy and it was like, yeah, pretty much. Our team was amazing. We took care of over 980 casualties in a four and a half month period. Um, We worked day and night. Um, I had the opportunity because of the fact that I had about 14 years of anesthesia time prior to deploying, my three docs that were deploying with me had just taken their boards a month prior to getting on the airplane to um, they had, they didn't even know if they passed their boards yet. And so I was the element lead for anesthesia and um, it it worked out for us as a team. We worked so well together. There was no such thing as somebody supervising your work. You had your own room, you had your own team. Um, We were a great support to each other. Um, Took care of my first patient. I'm, we're in country six hours and they wake us up. You know, we landed at one in the morning and six in the morning we had to go to training and all my military buddies that there know what day two training is. And they drive us around the base to um, a location and they walk us through and we have to identify what could possibly be um, an IED, you know, an explosive device, um, what um, could hurt you, what you should touch, what you shouldn't touch. Um, watch out for animals that can really hurt you. They have um, some some pretty vicious snakes and spiders and things over there besides bullets that can hurt you. And so we're having this this training on how to be in country. We've already gone through cultural training prior to getting on the aircraft. We all had to qualify um, with our nine millimeters or M16s before getting on the aircraft. Um, and we walked around the base loaded all the time, loaded with weapons, not loaded with drinks. Um, <laughs> I'm we glad were, you clarified that, Jan. Yes, we were not allowed. Actually, there was no alcohol in country um, that was uh, completely prohibited because we we honored the culture. And that was one of the things, no alcohol in country. Came back to the hospital expecting to have like, you know, an orientation. And the orientation was glad you guys are here. There's the OR. Here's the keys to the drugs. And we'll see you. And they left us. And we were like, huh. Wow. And the first patient came in and, and we're expecting 
a Marine, a 200 pound Marine. And we got this 19 pound, 18 month old that had swallowed a watch battery. Um, a third of our patients wow. were probably pediatrics. And a lot of us, when the war started, that was not something that people anticipated taking care of so many young people. Who'd have thunk it? Uh, one of the, the unique things on our team was, I know, <laughs> one of the unique things was um, I was the anesthesia element lead. And it's funny, even over there, the physicians had a hard time with the fact that a nurse was going to be the element lead. So I did not get the title of medical director, which is what the anesthesiologist would have been. Um, so I was the element lead. Oh, oh I had to make up a name for wow. you. They did. Um, but the good news was, um, Dave, that I was with, he, um, you know, because he's a good guy for one thing, um, but, you know, trauma, I had far more trauma. My last four months of training in, in school was with Baltimore Shock Trauma, and they send us there before we deploy. The training that we had there was amazing. And so, uh, and my background in nursing, too, is ICU and trauma. Not that I like traumatized patients, but I do love trauma. I mean, there, there's something to the rhythm that you get with that. And and um, our our team was, we just gelled really well. Like I said, the first patient was a young child, but we had a heads up when things were going to happen. There's a board that we'd get the call. And so we knew if we were getting a service member, an Afghani, an Afghani combatant, somebody who was shooting at us, or an Afghani citizen. Um, wow. So Tell us about taking care of an Afghani combatant, even though we've all taken care of patients who have done harm to others i mean right. we don't get a choice but right um the enemy combatant when they come in um you don't know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and you figure you have folks that they believe to be combatants when they bring them in um in a very humane way we put goggles on them so that they cannot see where they're going. And we put earmuffs on them so they cannot hear the conversation around them. Hmm. We do have Afghanis that work in the hospital as translators. Um, and we don't want these combatants to identify them or, or go out, potentially go after their families. And so we bring them in. Um, once your gown is cut off, we don't care if you're American, Afghani or whatever. You're, the triage is the same. The quality of care is the same. Um, ethically, we did have some people that had a hard time taking an Afghani, re regardless if they were a combatant or just an Afghani in front of a U.S. soldier. They had a hard time with that. Just, you know, the ethics of taking care of somebody before you take care of your own. But that's not what we're there for. We are there to give medical care regardless of who's who's coming in the door. Um, the combatants, they come, we found that they came from various countries. They weren't all Afghanis. We took care of um, cells of people. The special forces let us know when there was going to be um, contact with the enemy out there. So we would clear out the hospital and get ready for for casualties. And majority of the time, the casualties weren't ours. But like I say, once they come in and you cut the clothes off of them, it doesn't matter who they are. You just give them the best possible care that you can. Hey, Sharon, we've got some exciting news to share with people today, don't we? Yes, we do. And why don't you let the cat out of the bag, Jeremy? <laughs> wow, I don't usually put cats in bags. Is that kind of a deep-seated <laughs> thing with you or what? You know? uh, well, you know, some of our listeners know we've been doing live podcasts around the country at different state association meetings, A&A &A events, and so forth. 
And May 4th through the 7th, we're actually going to be at the Pennsylvania State Meeting. Sharon, you've been there a lot and spoken a lot there um, at the Hotel Hershey. Um, yes. Yeah, and I've never been to the Hotel Hershey. So I'm kind oh of my gosh, you are that. in for a treat. When you check in, they ask you milk or dark because you get chocolate when you check in. It's, it's really cool. So, listeners, if you want to go to a great meeting, Pennsylvania puts on a great meeting. We'll be doing the live podcast taping there. And they're going to be having a party there, too. And guess who the DJ is? Uh, let me think. Does his last name end with Pierce? Yes, it does. DJ so, Pierce come will and be join us. <laughs> Can't leave the house without him anymore, you know? That's right. So, Join us in in Pennsylvania at the Hotel Hershey, May 4th through the 7th, and come to a great meeting. As we wrap this up... Well, and, hang on one you know, second, we, Sharon, before we okay. wrap it up. Oh, my gosh. You've got yeah. another question? Got, I just, you know, I mean, Jan's on here. We've got her right now, so... Okay. <laughs> you know, Your we, mouth wasn't moving, so I just jumped right in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jan, I, I guess one of the things that, that I'm wondering is... Is there a threat to independent practice for the military CRNA right now? Do you think there is, or is that something we need to be concerned about? Absolutely. I believe that the, the anesthesiologists in the military also are trained, many of them, in the civilian practice when they come to us. And they are being taught the same thing we're being taught. And the one thing that they're being taught is that CRNAs need to be supervised. And they will, and they have tried in the past on the other, um, the last time we spoke, we were talking about in 2010, when they tried to rewrite the the regulations for the Air Force. And instead of just getting collaborative practice, we got full practice um, from them. But if you go back and read the regulations now, it does say that we are to practice um, the art of nurse anesthesia to the full extent of our education and training. But somehow they slipped in there the anesthesia care team model, which is the safest model to practice under, Mm -hmm. which I don't know why they put that in there. But that's in all of the regs now, whether it's the Air Force regs, the Army regs or the Navy regs. But the caveat is that it does state that the lead of the ACT can be a CRNA or an anesthesiologist. But... They can change that whenever they want. Now, all of the services have consultants that are supposed to keep an eye on that kind of stuff. And we do meet with them. We do have the um, federal, um, the government task force that, that we had when you were. And that's what we, that you put together with us. The consultants just have to make sure they pay attention to that. Um, the military is changing a little bit. We have the Defense Health Headquarters, um, the DHA, which who I refer to as the devil, which I'm not supposed to, but since I'm not in uniform anymore, <laughs> DHA is the devil. They want to write a practice model for all of the anesthesia providers to follow, and they are pushing the ACT model, and they are not pushing who should be the lead for it except for anesthesiologists because they believe that will take the stress or, or the stress off of us. No, it does not. And so if you are in the military, um, be aware of the fact that you're not safe. They want to come after your practice. Now, they you can still practice independently because you have to deploy, but they could write it differently. So, so they can Jan, put so the Jan, vision just, in there in different ways. I, I'm just sitting here thinking, so does that mean 
if if you're in a country, uh, there's war going on, are they going to send anesthesiologists to the front lines like they do CRNAs? Now, my understanding was that the way the militaries viewed it is that the physicians were too valuable to be on the front lines. Is Am I understanding that correctly? You know, that was interesting because that was said by a civilian um, anesthesiologist who probably didn't know a damn thing about what they do in the military. Most of the military anesthesiologists are great. They are not threatening at all. We work well collaboratively and they have deployed to the front line as well. Um, There's not as many of them. So I wouldn't say they're as valuable or more valuable than the CRNAs, but that is not how CRNAs are referred to in the military. That was a civilian anesthesiologist who does not understand the training that we have in the military. Gotcha. And that's good to clear that up because I think we've heard that on the show before. Mm -hmm. That was said before. So so. insulting. Yeah. So insulting. Now, Sharon. All right. Last question. Does the military really have rivalries between the branches? People always they do in bars that. at night. I've been uh, I've been at the piano bars whenever they'll start throwing down money to play their song. <laughs> That's right. I mean, there there there's a friendly rivalry across all the military services, but everybody knows, um, especially if you ask the Air Force CRNAs, that the Air Force is probably the best of all the services to be in. Um, so just ask like Jerry Hogan, ask Amy Forrester, you know, ask uh, <laughs> Carolyn Sabolas. Just just ask the right people, and they will all tell you that the Air Force is the number one branch. Um, no rivalry at all. <laughs> no rivalry whatsoever. No man. None. none. <laughs> well, oh, you know, of course, you would think the Air Force was the best because you know you did marry. Uh, stud muffin in his flight suit, <laughs> flying the stealth. I mean, for God's right. sake, that's a poster. There you go. There you go. <laughs> you didn't stand a chance, Jan. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You know me is to love me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And there's stud muffin right there. <laughs> All right. Well, Jan, as we conclude, anything you want to leave our audience with today? No, it, it's uh, thank you for inviting me um, to speak. Um, and just being in the military has been quite the honor. Um, and every one of my brothers and sisters um, that have worn the uniform and continue to wear the uniform, I I can tell you that to a person, they're so proud. I'm so proud of all of them and what they've done. Um, the sacrifices, leaving their families when they've had to. Um, I didn't mention that as one of the disadvantages, but one of the great disadvantages that is that we've missed birthdays, graduations, weddings. Um, we've missed significant events, but it was all for a greater purpose, and that's because we like serving our country. It is an honor, and it is one that we will take to our grave. So. Perfect. Well, Jan, we want to thank you for all you've done for CRNAs and continue to do for CRNAs. And um, I know that you're still very active and you've got a lot of things on your plate and it seems like there might be some bigger things coming up for you in the ANA. And um, you're well loved and well liked. And, you know, we just all appreciate what you do. Even a non-CRNA like me, can look at Jan Setner and go, wow, she's something special. So we, we really appreciate you being on the show today and all you continue to do. And thank you for your service. Absolutely. My pleasure. Absolutely. You and Stud Muffin. <laughs> the Stealth Stud Muffin. That's what Ooh, I like it. <laughs> all right, Sharon. Well, I think it's a wrap. I think so. Well, Sharon, 
Why don't you close us today? I'm going to let you do it. <laughs> I like to mess with her sometimes and let her close us up. Don't, don't throw a kink in the waterworks just because <laughs> you're a little slow today. <laughs> well, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If they like our show, Sharon, and want to help us grow, how can they do that? Well, the best way to help us to grow is to leave us a review, but make it positive. We all know there's way too much negativity in this world. Absolutely. Tell all your friends, share us on social media. We're in the top 50 medical podcasts in the country on the way to number. Number one, of course, just like we are in the CRNA community. Absolutely. All right. Until next time. Finish it up there, Jeremy. What's the matter? Until next time. (laughs) It's a wrap. It's a wrap. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.